All right, well, good evening. Uh, before I start, uh, well, I'm going to let you all turn there, but it's, we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8 tonight. So if you'll go ahead and turn there. I just want to thank you all and thank Park. Um, you all have been there for me for, like Dave said, around three years now. In the last uh, three years in spring was about the time I got baptized. And whatever phase I've been through, uh, however angry I looked or however ecstatic I looked or whether I had shaggy hair or beard down here or whatever new tattoo I got, y'all were, y'all were always there with open arms. and I've, I've really appreciated that. So thank you. Isaiah chapter 6, 1 through 8, I'm going to read it, we're going to pray, and we're going to dive on in. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. Pray with me. Father, um, thank you for the opportunity to bring the word to my brothers and sisters, to this family, God. I admit, God, that I am nervous. God, I admit that in the deepest parts of my soul, God, I, I want to impress with my words, God. I want to, I want to look big, God. And God, I repent of that, and I pray that, that you look big in this message, God, and that I look small. God, I, I hide myself behind the cross, God, that people be able to see you and your glory for what it is, and that I'm just the messenger, God. I pray be with Park and be with myself as we hear this, Lord. Amen. So Robert the Bruce was king of the Scots from 1306 to 1329. He's by most accounts well-respected, admired by his people. He um, led the charge for Scottish independence against England. If you know anything about that kind of history, there is a big battle. The Scots don't like the English. Let's just put it that way. Uh, he's regarded as a national hero today. A lot of people in Scotland still remember him, still like him very much. Unfortunately, he did not get to enjoy his time of prosperity um, that, that he had brought to his country. He died at the early age of 54. But on his deathbed... He brought to him one of his most faithful knights. He requested that his heart be removed from his body once he died, that it be embalmed and be put into a necklace-type contraption and taken on a crusade to the Holy Land, to, the, to uh, Jerusalem. From that point forward, the knight, um, his name is James Douglas, he wore his king's heart around his neck in a small container. And on his way to Jerusalem, uh, Douglas and his, his men were doing well for a while, and they counted... Uh, the Moors in Spain, the Spanish Muslims, they're known to be um, pretty nasty fighters. You don't want to run into these guys. And uh, they were being, uh, they got in the battle and they were being overwhelmed. They were being attacked. You can imagine me sweat dripping and swords are clashing and shields are growing up. And, and, and Douglas and his men are at the, at the point of death. The death is in, in, imminent, imminent. Sorry. And he takes off the heart, his king's heart, from around his neck. And as he's dying, and he throws it towards the enemy. He throws it in the heart of the battle, and he yells to his men, Fight for the heart of your king. 
And Douglas, even in his dying moments, had an unshakable loyalty to his beloved king. He would perish doing just as he had promised to his king. He knew who the king was, who, what his place was as a loyal knight, and what his dying mission must be. I don't tell this story because I really love Braveheart. I don't tell this story to flatter my dad who's obsessed with Scottish history and lineage. I don't tell it to seem smart or to promote any such crusade. Lord knows I'm not going to try to promote a crusade or anything. But our story starts with a king. It starts with King Uzziah. You see in verse 1, in the year that King Uzziah died. Now Uzziah, much like Robert the Bruce, had ruled during an era of prosperity in Judah. He represented stability and peace among the people. If they had political stats back then, his, his um, approval rating would have been probably pretty high, I would imagine, probably well above the 50% mark, which we don't really see. But as we know, the story of God's testament or God's people in the Old Testament is the constant back and forth, the faithfulness, the, the drifting, distraction, rejection. And, and Uzziah, he's, he's no exception to this. He's a great king. Um, the people love him, and he's faithful for the most of his life. And, and when things start going well, he gets arrogant. Uh, he became proud and began to look at himself as, as an exception to the rules, essentially. If you want more, you can go to Second Chronicles 26. But God struck him down. He struck him with leprosy. He started breaking out with it on his forehead. And now Judah was, out there with, was without their king. He, he went from a king to a leper at the bottom of the societal pecking order, the, the, the most to the least. Now, one can imagine that Judah would have been super just anxious and intimidated now. And this is where Isaiah is dropped in. This is, this is the context. So we're going to look at this through three points. Hey, it's up there. First is the holiness of God. So Isaiah has this vision of the Lord. He's in a room, the throne room, looking up at the Lord, as we can see in verse 1. Let me read it. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. So we see automatically we're dropped into this. Not only is the Lord on a throne, but it is high and lifted up. His position is distinct and clear, and we see that it is different from Isaiah. Uh, we see later in, in that same language of high and lifted up, later in Isaiah with 52 and 57, us evangelicals know those, those chapters by heart probably. Uh, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up. He shall be exalted. Now imagine with me just... Precursors out the window. We know nothing about Christianity, the attributes of God, theological definitions of holiness. We can see by this picture already that God is inherently different than us. There's a disconnect there. God is something that we are not. He is high and lifted up. Now, we also see the train, the train of his robe. Upon reading this, I'll admit to you I had no idea what a train was on a robe. I had to look it up. I had no clue. But I imagine the, the flowing piece of, of fabric or part of the dress of a, of a lady's wedding dress that flows off. And, you know, sometimes you see people carrying it behind her so she doesn't trip on it or something. But it says that it filled the temple. His train filled the temple. So imagine if this is the throne room and the Lord is up here, his train is literally filling the temple. It's obviously supernatural. It's obviously um just out of this world, it's obviously supposed to give us this picture of divinity. Now, if we look back at King Robert, he would have probably had a train on his robe, or at least some sort of article of clothing that would have given us a picture of royalty. A lot of a lot of um, royalty had trains on their robes, and they were supposed to look, you know, distinct. They were supposed to look, I don't know, higher than their people. Well, we automatically see that the trains made to make God look holy, impenetrable, royal, and above every king on this earth especially King Uzziah. So at the start, we got to ask ourselves, what is going on? This is no ordinary scene. 
Now, verse 2 introduces the seraphim. Um, I'm going to read it. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. Now, these seraphim are angelic beings that are usually made up of or surrounded by fire. I will admit to you again that um, this has been my favorite section of Scripture for a long time. And, and for the longest time, I would just gloss over that part, mainly because it was scary. Scary and intimidating because I had no idea what it meant. I had no idea what a seraphim is. But it's the type of angel that's usually made up of or surrounded by fire, if you can try to picture that with me. But they're not ordinary. The mere presence of angels um, typically brings fear and trembling in the scriptures. When Daniel um, taught, he told us that if anyone um, in the scriptures sees an angel, he's, he's most likely terrified, right? Because that angel had been in the presence of God, and now that angel is in the presence of a human, they're usually pretty scared. It's not a pretty sight. Um, well, it says that the angels have six wings. They have two for covering their feet, two for their eyes, and two for flying. Now, the function of these wings tells us a lot more than the actual number of them. But we are to see that um, the Lord is pictured to be so holy that the ground around it becomes, it becomes hallowed. It's sacred. It, it denotes and demands reverence. Now, this sacred ground, this theme comes up in Scripture, and maybe your minds already went there. I'm going to read from Exodus chapter 3, starting in verse 4. You don't have to turn there with me. I'm just going to go real quick. It says, When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. And he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off of your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. So Moses could not approach the Lord in this instance without taking his sandals off. There was, there was reverence and a deep respect that comes with the presence of the Lord. God's holiness is so profound and powerful that the ground around him was made to be holy. It's the same picture that we get in the throne room here with the seraphim. They are covering their feet because they are in the Lord's presence. Yes, they are angels, but, but he, the Lord, is the one that is holy. Their angelic nature does not come close to comparing how wonderful, radiant, and powerful the Lord's holiness is. To get an idea of the angel's place and purpose, I'm going to read, again, you don't have to turn there with me, I'm just going to breeze through it real quick, but listen to how the angels are depicted in relation to God. Revelation 19, 9 and 10. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. My angels are fellow servants. They are not worthy of our praise or worship. Yes, they are incredible creatures. And yes, maybe we should look at them and be like, wow, that's really cool. But how much more is God worthy of our praise, our worship, our adoration? That's the picture that these, these wings covering the feet are supposed to give us. We're supposed to say, wow. Now, a few years, few years ago, my family and I, we took a trip to Boston um, we're all pretty big baseball fans in my family, my mom and I in particular, and we went to a Boston Red Sox game. And we, we walked into Fenway Park, and if those of you who know baseball or know sports, Fenway Park's a pretty exciting place. We walk in, walk on the concourse, you know, you kind of come up this ramp, and, and the field is right there. It just kind of sneaks up on you, the grass, you got the green monster, uh, players are out on the field warming up, and this sense of this weightiness just hit me. I did not feel like I deserved to be there. I literally just felt heavy. heavy. I had goosebumps and and just kind of clammy almost. Well, I imagine that this was what um, the seraphim must have felt like in front of God, except obviously, you know, a million fold since they're in the presence of the Lord. 
Well, the two wings that cover their eyes also tell us about the holiness of God. It's kind of the same picture that we're getting um, with them covering their feet. We can spend all day trying to decipher why exactly they're going to cover their eyes, but I think it would be safe to say that the presence of God in its entirety, in its um, in its just raw nature like that, would have hurt their eyes. Much like we walk outside, you know, middle of July, you walk outside, sun's really high up in the sky, and you, you kind of cover your eyes when you go outside or you squint because the sun is radiant, it's powerful, it, it hurts if you look directly into it. The Lord gives off a shining radiance that is unmatched with anything in the universe. This is why they're covering their, their eyes. While these creatures are able to be in the presence of the Lord, His holiness demands that they show reverence, respect, and that they are not one with Him. Uh, I'm going to read verse 3 and verse 4 now. Follow with me. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him, of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Now, as if the six-winged thing wasn't enough to try and wrap my head around, as if I'm not already intimidated by these seraphim, they're shouting across the throne room to each other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Can we just take a second to reflect on how beautiful this statement is? That number one, God is holy. Number two, the whole earth is full of his glory. Praise God that we can look throughout the world and be reminded of his glory and how good he is. Amen. One day I went for a walk. I was feeling a little down. I went for a walk with my neighbor and we're walking around the neighborhood and, and he just pointed out to me. He said, man, isn't it crazy that God can, he knows that that leaf is falling right now. He knows about that siren that just passed. He knows um, every blade of grass. He knows the hairs on your head all while upholding the earth, making it spin, and hearing our prayers all at the same time. Can't we see that the earth is full of his glory? It was pretty comforting for me and pretty profound in the moment. And, and yes, my neighbor is Dave Keene, so it was Pastor Dave. Cat's out the bag. Now, it would be wrong to gloss over the holy, holy, holy that the seraphim are calling out. Indeed, this is the, the focal point of our passage. This is the only attribute of God that I could find in the Bible that is repeated threefold like this. I could be wrong, so fact check me if you want and correct me. But I cannot find anything that says merciful, 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 or love, 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 or just, 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 or anything like that. But it says holy, holy, holy. Any repetition of the Bible is typically used to call our attention. The Bible, the Word of God, wants us to hear something when it's repeating it. It's saying, incline your ears to this. We see Christ using repetition, and your, and your Father who sees in secret will, will reward you. You hear that term, that phrase, at least a couple times throughout the Sermon on the Mount. You also hear, repent and believe, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He repeats that often because that's his main message, right? The theme of the seraphim's repetitive statement could not be more clear. It is God's holiness. His holiness shows that he is operating above us in the sense that he is not worldly, but he is absolutely pure. Now, as, the, as these angels are calling out across this throne room and smoke is billowing out, it's also shaking. The, the, the foundations of the temple shook. So I think that's supposed to show us that God is powerful. He's not just there. He's powerful, powerful enough perhaps to be feared. And so I'm a, I'm a guy that really needs black and white. I need answers. I don't do well with ambiguity or, or open question marks. And I was having a hard time coming up with my own definition or, or a succinct definition of what God's holiness is. So obviously I used the Internet and I looked one up. John Piper says, 
He says, God's holiness is his infinite value as the absolutely unique, morally perfect, permanent person that he is, and who by grace made himself accessible. That's the entire point of our passage, isn't it? To make us see God as holy. He's unique, permanent, perfect, all while being gracious and acceptable. Just praise God that he's accessible. Praise God that we can even get into that throne room in the first place. That we can go to our God, the one that can make, uh, has a train flowing throughout a throne room, the one that can make things shake and smoke going and controls these fiery angels. But he lets us go to him and lets us bring our request to him. So I want to ask a few questions. I think it's always helpful uh, or healthy to, to ask questions when we go to the scripture. So what is your view of God's holiness? How reverently do we go to God? Now, I think, and this is something I'm learning in my own life right now, I think some of us um, may go to God feeling like we have to walk on eggshells. He is holy, so I have to watch how I pray, and I have to pray perfectly, and I have to pray the right things with the right doctrine, in the right way, in the right voice, in the right setting, because God is holy and I'm not. And I'm not saying go to God irreverently. Yes, we should show reverence. Perhaps there are some of us, particularly in the younger generation, who need to show more. But we should not be afraid to go to God. As we said, God let Isaiah in the throne room in the first place. Philippians 4, 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. All I'm trying to say and make the point is that God is holy and should be respected. Yes and amen, but that should not deter us from going to him with raw and real requests. So we're left here. Finally, what does God's holiness tell us about ourselves? It, when I look at that, it very clearly tells us and tells me that I'm nothing at all like him. And that leads us into our second point. Yes. Sweet. Verse 5, look at it with me. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King the Lord of hosts. So Isaiah sees God's holiness and in direct response to it acknowledges how broken he is. He said that he is lost, he has no direction, he has no direction, he doesn't know where he's going, he's following the world, following the prince of the power of the air, doing what the world calls him to do. And then the Lord brings him into the throne room. Isaiah sees the Lord and his world's flipped upside down. Notice how raw Isaiah is in this confession. You know, it's very it's very real, it seems very heartfelt, right? And we do not know exactly what Isaiah's sins are, and we don't know exactly what made him unclean, nor do we know what makes the people unclean in this instance, but we can assume that he was living for himself, that he was living as a sinner, that he did not, uh, he, he was dirty and really had no presence or no um, business being in the presence of God. He did not deserve to be there. Haven't we all done the same thing? We should be able to relate to Isaiah on this note. Now, it's important that he calls his lips unclean. I want to draw your attention to that. It shows just how unworthy Isaiah is to be here, right? It's, he's a king. God's a king. You don't put dirty things in front of a king and expect something good to happen. You know, in, in, in history, you know, you, you put your best foot forward when you're talking to royalty, right? Um, he was full, in, side note, Isaiah was probably fully aware of what happened to King Uzziah, so he had to have been terrified in this moment. That's, that one's free. He also acknowledges that his people, not only him, the people of Judah had gone astray. My genera or the generation at hand doesn't know God. And my question is, do we respond to the knowledge of God with an acknowledgement of our own sin? 
A healthy understanding of our sin brings us to the foot of the cross begging for forgiveness. When we see how God, holy God is, do we look at our own sin or do we just see God? Because I believe when we see how holy God is, we should, as much as we should look God at, at God ten times more than we see ourselves, right? But we should look at God, see how holy he is, and then flip the mirror and see how exactly not like that we are. We are depraved. Because let's be honest, we've all heard about God in this room. We all know that we are nowhere near perfect. But God and man are functioning on two totally different levels. One is high and lifted up. The other is not. Now, what do we do with that information? I do not believe that I have the authority to remind our church just how sinful we are. But I would be doing an injustice to the gospel if I glossed over that and if I didn't. Our church is growing. Families are being blessed. Our members are advancing the kingdom. Great ministries happening. But we cannot forget that none of this is our undoing. Time and time again, we have missed the mark. Most of us have fallen into snares this week. We've fallen into snares even this afternoon before we came. Snares that are an abomination to God. Snares that put that nail in his hand on the cross. Park Baptist is not sinless. I certainly am not sinless. Y'all are not sinless. However, he does not leave us there. That's the beautiful thing about the gospel, right? It keeps on going. We're not just left there to sit in our sinfulness. Verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. We go from verse 5, hearing the desperation and the anguish in Isaiah's voice, to witnessing the remedy of his sin. One of the seraphim that we discussed earlier, those terrifying, fiery, six-winged creatures, flies over to him and applies the remedy to him. And we could look at this in my analytical mind, ask a ton of questions. Why burning coal? Why his lips? Where is the altar that this is happening? Uh, How is the angel holding the tongs if he's got six wings? But the point is that his guilt is taken away and his sin is atoned for. The same lips that were unclean when Isaiah came into this throne room are now clean. It is interesting to note that Jesus talks about the mouth in Luke 6 in reference to uh, the teaching of the tree and the fruit that you bear. He says, out of the heart the mouth speaks. Our words indeed, and we all know this, show a lot more about what is in our hearts than we realize when they're actually coming out of our mouth and about the things that we say. The, connect, the connection here can be made with Isaiah's lips. You know, he's not, he's not talking about his lips here. He's talking about his heart. He brings that coal and he touches it on his lips. It's not a, it's not a divine act of behavior modification. He's not just fixing um, Isaiah's speech. He's not just fixing and making Isaiah a gracious talker. He's fixing his heart. His soul is going from unclean to clean. His, he's being regenerated. Let's not lose sight of the context here. When is this remedy and atonement applied to our prophet? It's only after he admits our depravity. So only after we admit our depravity, how sinful we are, how awful we are in our heart of hearts, that's when we can come to know the Lord. Only once we realize that we are messed up do we even need a solution. You know, If we see our sin as small, our Savior will be small. If we see our sin as big, our Savior will be big. And what led him to admit his sin? It was because he had, his eyes had seen the king. So you see the progression there? He sees the king. He sees his sinfulness. And then he sees that he needs a savior. Looking at the Lord and his holiness should cause us to look at ourselves and see how broken we are. No sane human being can say that he's without fault. Otherwise, we're just tricking ourselves. But praise God that he's not leave us broken. He sends an atonement, a remedy, a solution 
to the problem that we all have, that we've all had since Adam. What does Isaiah 53 say? Listen here. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds, we are healed. This is the same picture we're getting with the seraphim applying the call to Isaiah. We are healed. That cleansing, healing peace. And Keith, I love that you brought up the thing about um, it's we don't get saved, or God saves us. Because you see, uh, in this, Isaiah didn't run over to, to this altar and pick up the coal by himself and put it on his lips. It was God's messenger. It was God that was applying the coal to him. God saved him. He needed to be something saved by something much bigger and, and greater than himself. So we've asked questions about God's holiness. What about our depravity? What sins are you dealing with? Was the one so when I say sin, I imagine one glaring sin comes to the forefront of your mind that you're dealing with right now. At least that's what happens to me. So what is that one? What sins are our church dealing with? I think in the past our sin, our church, our, our probably our like our biggest sin would have been divisiveness. At least when I first got here, but I don't think we deal with that anymore. I think God has delivered us. There, there has been a big um, just sense of unity and family and gracious gentleness among all the members here. But that doesn't mean we're without sin. We probably need to go to the Lord with sins, both corporately and individually, that we need to repent of. I think it'd be beneficial to seek those out. Much to the detriment of the gospel, Western culture likes to try and convince us that we are okay, that brokenness is not a big deal, and that only figurative grace needs an application to our lives. And that could not be further from the truth. We need a literal deliverance from our sin, a literal grace. Have you fallen into thinking you're not sinful? Do you think you're not sinful? Do you think that you are okay? Or on the flip side, have you forgotten about God's grace? Do you think you're such a terrible sinner that you are outside of the realm of God's grace? Beloved, that is not true. Forgotten, possibly, that you don't have to be perfect because Christ has died like a lamb led to a slaughter. Brothers and sisters, it is healthy to be convicted of our sin. It's healthy to talk about it. It's not fun. But let's call it what it is. Let's call a spade a spade. Let's not use... Let's refrain from using words like mess up or mistake or, or struggle. Let's just call it what it is. It's, it's sin. It's an ab- abomination against God. It's the thing that put the nails in his hands, and it's the thing that Christ died for. But we must not forget. We must not sit in that. We must not sit there and let it dwell that we are sinful. We have to keep this in mind that just as God said to Isaiah, he is saying to us, your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Now we're going to move on to our last point, which is called the mission of both. Verse 8, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. Now here is Isaiah's call to prophecy. Here is our prophet. God does not save Isaiah so that he can be clean and get comfortable and kick his feet up for a while and learn some doctrine and learn some theology. No, he's sending him straight into the workforce. He's sending him straight into the field. Some of you may be wondering, or maybe not, I just question pretty much everything that goes in my brain. But he, he says why the Lord says us in this context. Um, could be good to know that the us is probably referring to the Trinity. So 
Isaiah is to be an ambassador. Second uh, Corinthians five twenty is supposed to be an ambassador for Christ, an ambassador on behalf of the Trinity. So you see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit sending Isaiah out in the midst of this people of unclean lips. These people have functionally turned from the Lord, just as Isaiah had done. Now that he's turned back, but he had turned from the Lord, and he's going out for those same people. When is Isaiah's calling commission? Is directly after he is saved. I believe that this is of utter importance to note. This may apply to the younger generation than anybody else, but I believe it's good for all to hear, and probably it does apply to all of us in this room. But there's no timetable in which you must sit in the knowledge of God after we're saved until we're allowed to go out and make disciples. Look at Isaiah. His call to ministry is literally right after his profession of faith. Yes, he is a prophet, but that is not necessarily unique to him. In fact, it is an expectation to the faithful Christian that we will go out. The answer is absolutely and imperatively, yes, we must and shall go out and tell people the same thing that saved us. Look at the disciples. These disciples were immature. They were young. They were just kind. Most of them were kind of good at fishing. That's about all there was. Christ was expecting them to go out and sending them out while they were still young and, and full of many doubts and wrong thinking. Look at Peter. Mark 3.14, the appointment of the twelve. And he appointed twelve so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach. And he might send them out to preach. So from the beginning, he calls them and the expectation immediately is that they would go out and preach the gospel to those around them. They are not to sit around and do nothing. You look in 2 Kings 22, King Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign. The point I'm getting at is that we are not saved, that we can get comfortable in getting bearings straight for a while, but that we must go out. Young believers can and should make a difference for the kingdom of God, and I'm happy to be at Park where I believe that does happen. I'm, saying, I'm not saying that we need to be irresponsible in letting people go out. Obviously, we need to send people who are knowledgeable with the word, who are, who are um, believers in the Lord, but I'm, I, I see a common complacency with younger believers and, and with millennials to, to say, ah, no, maybe I should just learn or be disciple for a while before I can actually spread my faith. And I just don't think it's true. We're brought into God's family. It's not an option. It's an expectation that we would share the gospel with our neighbor. Let's also look at this response uh, that Isaiah has to God. He says, here I am. It's simple. It's raw. It's real. It's clear. And it made me think of, of, of Genesis 3, of Adam and Eve. You know, they sin, and what do they do? They hide. They try to hide from God. Now, Isaiah says, here I am. And just plainly, simply, here I am. There's freedom in coming and being called by God when we are cleansed and our sin atoned for. When our sins atoned for, we do not worry about having to clean ourselves up or to hide from God or to try to uh, not show him our mistakes because he already sees us. We can say, here I am. He doesn't ask questions either. He doesn't say, well, God, what exactly will I be doing with these people? Will it be comfortable? Can I get home for the holidays because I really cherish that time with my family? No. Isaiah simply says, send me. Yeah, send me. All too often, um, I miss opportunities for evangelism because I simply, I don't disregard my own plans, my own insecurities. I think that my sin is too big to be able to evangelize to other people sometimes. I think I often forget what hangs in the balance. I think I often forget that it's there's dead people walking all around me. And I think if I remember that more, I'd probably probably let people know about the gospel. Well, I'm sure there are a number of reasons why you neglect to share the gospel, why you're perhaps fearful of man. What are those? Uh, search those out 
in your heart and bring them to the light because it will help you. On the other hand, I'm so encouraged by the people in our church who are willing to go out. So since last summer, Witt and I, we read a book um, called Evangelism together. Um, and since then, I've, I've been, pr- been praying pretty fairly regularly for a culture of evangelism within our church. And I, want to, I want people to look at Park Baptist in Rock Hill and be able to say that we are a community that loves the lost, y'all, that we are known for loving the lost. One of my biggest fears is that we would cocoon, that we would, we would close ourselves off to the community around us, and that we would not forget that there are unbelievers, there are people that don't know Christ like we do sitting all around us. But I, I don't think that's where our church is at. I look at people like Grant Henson. I see someone who cares about non-Christians. He's a man who has a send-me attitude. He's a man that will say, you want to go to the lost, I'll take you to the lost. He, he's a man that will live below his means in order to be around lost people so that they don't have to go to hell, so that he can preach the gospel to them. And look at the whole Henson family unit, y'all. Does Amber not just gentleness and the gospel ooze out of her? Praise God for people like Henson's. I look at people like Jasmine. She goes to a country that has around five evangelical churches in it. Y'all, I counted one day on the way from my neighborhood to Park, about 11. That's over twice the amount of evangelical churches that are in Bulgaria. She sees lost people in a need to go. She sees where the Lord is leading her, even if there is not a direct plan in place. And I cannot be more proud of the way the church is centered. Schellenberger's looking at you, doing a great job of sending people out to the mission field. This is one huge prayer in regards to the culture of evangelism I'm talking about. I look at people like Sarah Servants, who will be going to Shanghai and Albania this upcoming fall. She doesn't talk about it a whole lot because she's super, she's super humble, but uh, she has a heart for lost people. She has a heart for particularly people of the Islamic faith. She spent a summer in Amsterdam ministering to people there. And, y'all, she has a send me attitude. I look at people like Casey as well. And shortly after I came to park, he took me under his wing. And if anyone knows Casey's story, he came down from Kentucky um, with nothing, really, with his parents just divorced, with him, with him broke, with him not exactly having a plan, but he knew that he was to come down here to preach the gospel to high schoolers. And that's what he did, and some of them are still in our midst today. Y'all, this is our dying mission. This is our dying mission. There are so many examples in our church that I see. I see the, the, the fountain, the, the cookies, and, and the lemonade at the fountain. I see the dosters going down to Mexico. I see Jen Gross and Carrie Green talking to a guy in Novas. I see Daniel ministering to his Muslim friend at work, Derek. It is all over our church, y'all. Park Baptist is a church that loves the lost and wants them to know the Lord. Amen. Let's keep that up. Now, in our introduction, introduction, we saw the loyalty that Douglas had for his king. He took his loyalty to the grave. He fought tooth and nail to fulfill the promise that he had made to his king. Let us do the same. May Park Baptist be known and be continued to known for this. Isaiah, I think this can tell us a lot. It can tell us a lot about God's holiness and can tell us a lot about our sinfulness. It tells us a lot about how we should go, how we should go to the lost. I pray that that sit on your hearts, that that encourages you to go to love our church and to love our community um, like Christ loves them. I'm going to pray, and then I think Ben's going to come up and pray, play one more song. Thank you for hearing me out. Thank you for putting up with me. Uh, I really appreciate it. Father, thank you that you are holy. God, thank you that you are operating on a different plane than we are, God, that yet that you are accessible, God, that you allow us to come to you with raw and real requests, God, that you 
allow us to be saved by you. God, thank you for our salvations. God, I pray that we do not forget who you are, that we do not forget who we are, God, and that we are to share that same that same remedy that we have received with our brothers and sisters outside of this church, God, who do not know you, Lord. I pray that happens. It's in your name. Amen.